0: Hello, it's wonderful to be back. Uh, my family and I, as Randy noted, we're on vacation uh, for the last two weeks or so. Uh, we've enjoyed a time of respite. But it's, uh, we miss CBC. Thrilled to be back here with the uh, people that we love. And uh, let me add my voice to the chorus of voices. Uh, happy Father's Day to all of you fathers who are with us today. Um, God bless you and continue to strengthen you in your hard but rewarding efforts as fathers. Uh, we are, as you know, in the book of Nehemiah, And you're invited to turn there to chapter 6. We'll be looking at the whole uh, chapter together. Nehemiah chapter 6. Let's hear God's word together. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hecathirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel and that is why you are building the wall and according to these reports you wish to become their king and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem there is a king in Judah and now the king will hear of these reports so now come and let us take counsel together then I sent to him saying no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind for they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done but now O God strengthen my hands now when I went into the house of Shemaiah the son of Deliah son of Mehetabel uh, who was confined to his home he said let us meet together in the house of God within the temple let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you they are coming to kill you by night but I said should such a man as I run away and what man such as I could go into the temple and live I will not go in and I understood and saw that God had not sent him but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanbalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days and when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God moreover in those days the nobles of judah sent many letters to tobiah and tobiah's letters came to them for many for many in judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of shechaniah the son of era And his son Jehonan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess that you are incomparably great. Father, were you to give us every earthly pleasure, but but withhold yourself, we would have no good thing. You are the fountain of life. To have you is to have everything. Father, we have seen but a small glimpse of your glory and greatness, and our hearts thirst for more. Be pleased this morning, O God, to display your greatness, your wisdom, your love, your goodness towards your children. Grant us to behold you, as you really are, by faith and to rejoice in you and to experience relief in your presence. Grant us to see your glory as it shines in the face of your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. It is in seeing him and resting in him that we find rest for our weary souls. Speak to us all this morning through your word, Father. Father, we confess that you are strong, but we are weak. You, O God, dwell in unapproachable light. You never grow weary. Uh, From eternity to eternity, you are strong and do as you please in heaven and on earth. But we, O God, are weak. We have sinned. We grow old. We die. We are creatures of a day, fragile, needy. And thank you, Father, that you take thought for us. Thank you that you meet us where we are and give us the strength that we need to do what you've called us to do. We thank you for the daily provision of strength and wisdom and grace. We ask, Heavenly Father, if there are weary hearts in our midst today, that your word would revive them and strengthen them to live lives that are honoring to you. Bless the proclamation of your word we ask, amen. Uh, Many years ago, when uh, my wife Stephanie and I were first married, she began to work as a nurse at a hospital. And you know how it is uh, with a new job, especially in a job like nursing. Uh, First few weeks, first few months are pretty demanding and difficult. And she'd come home tired at the end of the day and tell me how things had gone, how stressful the day had been. But I remember one night, it was particularly bad, she came home uh, stressed out, she told me about the day. And I gave gave her a bit of well-intentioned but ultimately bad advice. I said, well, if it's that hard, why don't you quit and find something easier? I reasoned in this way, if it's hard, That must be an indication that you shouldn't do it, so let's find something easier. That's, Some ways a typical male response. Uh, We give solutions, we don't listen, right? We find uh, solutions to the problem. Uh, What I ought to have done, of course, was listened patiently and offered a bit of encouragement. But the mistake I made is a mistake I think that uh, we are frequently tempted to make in our walk with God. Uh, We walk on the path of obedience and discover that there's opposition and difficulty. And we assume incorrectly that God's will for us is to take a new path, an easier path. But more often than not, God's will is for not for us to change course, but to persevere in the hard path of obedience, to keep putting one foot in front of the other, the path of responsibility. And uh, Nehemiah, in this passage, is a wonderful example of precisely this. He experiences unrelenting opposition from these men, But his response is to persevere in doing the great work that God has called him to do. This is an instance of an uh, immovable object, Nehemiah, encountering an unstoppable force, his enemies. Uh, They are unrelenting, but so is he. And he perseveres doing the work of God until it's completed. And what I want us to see in this passage this morning is that God also calls us to persevere in doing the good work that He has given each one of us to do. We are called to persevere through unrelenting opposition. We are called to persevere through intimidation. We are called to persevere through subtle schemes of our enemies. Persevere through unrelenting opposition. Persevere through intimidation. And persevere through subtle schemes. So the first thing we see is Nehemiah's readiness to persevere in the face of unrelenting opposition. He's come to Jerusalem for one reason, to rebuild the wall. And that wall is nearly completed at this stage. Uh, The only thing left, it seems, is for the doors to be put into the gates, but the breaches have all been repaired. And at this pivotal moment, uh, opposition intensifies from Sanballat, uh, Geshem, and uh, Tobiah. Now, Sanballat is a Babylonian name. We assume he's not Jewish. Uh, his daughter married the son of the high priest, according to Nehemiah 13. So this wicked Sambalat has his tentacles into the upper echelons of Jewish society. He's, uh, he knows some of the elites. Uh, there's historical evidence that even 30 years after this event, he continued to be uh, the governor of Samaria in this region, an enemy of Nehemiah. And then we have Tobiah, which is uh, incidentally a Jewish name, it seems that his son uh, married the daughter of a very prominent Jewish leader in Jerusalem. And he had all kinds of presumably economic contracts with, the, uh, again, the Jewish upper crust. And so he had all kinds of access uh, to prominent Jewish people. And this, this helps us understand something of the difficulty Nehemiah faces. He has to fight the battle on two fronts. He has to deal with enemies on the outside but he has all kinds of treacherous Jews on the inside, as we'll see, conspiring against him. He's got to fight on two fronts. And then there's Geshem, the Arab, who's probably the most powerful of the three, and he controls a territory to the south of Judea. Now these three men scheme against Nehemiah. The wall is nearly completed, and so this is their last, final effort to undermine the work of God. And how do they try to do it? Well first, they invite him to meet. Come meet with us in the plains of Ono. This is about 28 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was neutral territory, and on the surface, it was made, you know, intended to reconcile. Let's be friends. But as Nehemiah recognized, the purpose of the meeting was to kill him, was to get rid of him. They would have written back, no doubt, to the Jews. We're sorry to report that on the way to the meeting, a great stone fell from a mountain, hit Nehemiah in the head, and he's done to our great sorrow. Uh, That was their plan, Nehemiah saw right through it. Intriguingly, he doesn't write back and say, I know what you're doing, you're trying to kill me. He's much more tactful, he says, look, I've got a great work, I'm not gonna let it stop while I go to meet with you. God has called me to do this, and this is what I'm doing. Now you'd think they'd stop at this point, that didn't work, we're told four times they keep sending a messenger, will you do it now? 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 Now, those of you with children, Know how powerful that kind of unrelenting pressure can be. Or perhaps spouses, I hope not. Uh, That unrelenting request. But notice that Nehemiah endures. He doesn't respond. He keeps saying no, no. That's the striking thing. Uh, One of the striking things about this passage is how unyielding these guys are. They won't take no for an answer. They keep coming back to him. And when their first plot fails, they try intimidation. When that fails, they try religious deception, as we'll see. Evil doesn't sleep, doesn't sleep at Zebes. They keep coming back at Nehemiah. And what that reveals is that when God's people try to do some good work for God, there will be satanic opposition every step of the way. We should expect that. Every step of the road is going to be heavily defended by the enemy, and it's gonna take work and effort, sometimes disappointments and discouragements to achieve the work of God. When you try to do some good thing for God, fulfill some responsibility, you should expect that it will be hard. And when it's hard, you shouldn't conclude that you're called to do something else. What were you expecting? The work of God in a fallen world is opposed by Satan, and it will frequently be difficult. And the call for us is to persevere, not give up. So when you, sit, when you try to share the gospel with a coworker, tell them about the good news about Jesus Christ, and it doesn't go so well, don't give up. You keep doing it, what were you expecting? When you sit down to read scripture with your child and you find that there are all kinds of distractions that suddenly pop up out of nowhere, you don't lose heart and give up, you keep at it. When you drive to church on Sunday morning and there's the inevitable altercation with your spouse, I thought you were gonna clothe the kids, no, I thought you were gonna clothe the kids, right? Throws you off, you come to worship God and now you're distracted, what were you expecting? Every good endeavor that we attempt for the glory of God in this world will be opposed. And the call is not to lose heart and give up, but to persevere. And what enables Nehemiah to persevere is a robust and clear sense of calling. Look at verse 3. Here's how he responds. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave and come down to you? I'm on a mission. I didn't come to Jerusalem hundreds of miles away from my home to meet with the Tobias and Sambalat. I came to build the walls of Jerusalem, and that's what I'm doing. When you have that kind of single-minded focus on whatever it is God called you to do, it's much easier to persevere and say no to distractions and say no to things that would pull you away from your God-given responsibilities. So what has God called you to do? What great work has He given you? What gifts, opportunities, and responsibilities has He put in your path by which he has called you to advance his kingdom and bring glory to him? Has he called you to work hard and provide for your family and be salt and light in the workplace? Has he called you to raise godly children? Has he called you to use your gifts of hospitality to bring people into your home and help them know Jesus Christ? Has he called you to meet with new believers to help them grow in the faith? Has he called you to make money through your entrepreneurial know-how so you can fund worthy causes? What has God put in front of you to do And the more clear you are about that, and the more specific you are about the call of God on your life, the easier it is to persevere. Because you know what God wants. Do you know what God specifically wants of you? When you meander, there's no real sense of mission or purpose in your life, it's hard to persevere. Right, there's no sense of this is what God wants. But when you know in your bones, God has put me on this earth to do this, it gives you resolve to endure. So we see Nehemiah uh, resolve to finish the walls despite this unyielding opposition from his enemies. He perseveres. Second thing is he perseveres through intimidation. They failed the first time. Uh, now they've changed their strategy somewhat. Now it's an open letter that comes to Nehemiah. And why is it an open letter? So that its contents can leak out and discourage everybody. Now we're told in that letter that Sanballat says we've heard reports that you Jews are rebuilding the wall and proclaiming Nehemiah as king to rebel against the Persian king. This is treachery and sedition. And we are going to imper- inform the Persian king. Now sort a serious charge. If the Persian king believes this, then the Jews in general and Nehemiah specifically is in trouble. This is a weighty accusation. And the purpose of this accusation is to accomplish one of two things. Either to coerce Nehemiah into coming to that meeting, or if he doesn't do that, because it's an open letter, it's gonna demoralize everybody around him and the work will stop, verse nine. Their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done because of the fear. Right, that's what they're intending to do. Uh, This is one of Satan's favorite strategies to keep us from doing the work of God. He causes us to think about all the terrible things that might happen to us if we obey. He fills our heart with fear as we contemplate the threats of our enemies and how we might be harmed if we obey God. But note very carefully, fear is not an excuse for disobedience. God calls you to fear him above fearing men and do his will regardless of what the cost is to you. The first question is not, will will this hurt me or not? Will this bring pain to my life or not? The first question is always, what does God want? And once you determine that, everything else is in a sense irrelevant. If God's will is for you to stand strong in the face of intimidation, then you do that. And we, I think, especially need to recognize that because we live in a culture marked by increasing intimidation towards those who don't fall in line to the politically correct and acceptable viewpoints on a variety of topics. We're all familiar with the cancel culture, uh, how distinguished speakers are consistently disinvited from university, camp, uh, university campuses because they happen to hold the wrong view on, on this or that issue, transgenderism. And of course, Christians, Bible-believing Christians who hold to the teaching of the Bible on sex and gender are increasingly portrayed as immoral, uh, bigoted, narrow-minded, And there's threats and intimidation. And in all likelihood, those will simply increase. The threat of losing your job, all kinds of other uh, tactics will be employed against us. And so you need to settle it in your mind that you're gonna choose to please God rather than keep yourself safe and play it safe. What matters is obedience, not, in the final analysis, self-preservation. So what does Nehemiah do? I love his response. We heard these rumors, you better meet with us. You're uh, treacherous and rebelling against the king. His response is curt and wise. No such things as you say have been done. Boom. One sentence. You're lying. You're inventing them out of your own mind. You're just making stuff up. No, I'm not. And he keeps working. Now, the temptation would have been to sit in front of the computer screen for hours and craft this email that defends us point by point and send it out to our allies, and here's how I'm wrongly accused, and get distracted from the call of God. Is that what he does. You're lying, you're making it up, leave me alone. Boom, back to work. There's a single-mindedness that Nehemiah exhibits to the, the call of God that's just wonderful. He doesn't get distracted by these false accusations. Denies them, and carries on. How does he do that? He's a human being like us. He's, not a, he's a man of flesh and blood, not a man of iron. How does he have the strength to do that in the face of such threats and intimidation? Uh, Look at verse nine. Here's the answer. You get these little snippet prayers in Nehemiah, like strewn throughout the the book, and here's one of them. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. One of those concise prayers. Uh, They're threatening him. They're intimidating him. He goes to God. God, strengthen me for the work that you've given me to do. How do you stand up in the face of intimidation? It's not your inherent strength that enables you to do that. It's a life of robust prayer and communion with God. That's what gives you the strength to stand when intimidation and threats come. Prayer has a way of making the invisible God visible, as it were. Uh, Without prayer, we lose perspective. We see our enemies and we see how powerful they are, but we forget the majesty of our God. And prayer brings God into the equation. And we stop trembling at our enemies because now we tremble at the majesty of God. If you want to stand firm in a society that's increasingly hostile to you and your faith, you need to cultivate a rich and robust life of prayer, a daily communion with the Lord. That's what Nehemiah did and that's what strengthened him to endure. Now the third plot is the most subtle and sinister of all. all, And Nehemiah continues to persevere in the face of subtle schemes. This time, it's a prophet of the Lord who invites him to a meeting. Nehemiah, going into that meeting, thinks that this is a man of God. This is a person who's supposed to speak the words of God. He's confined to his home, Shemaiah is. We're not entirely sure why. But Nehemiah shows up, and the prophet of God has a word for Nehemiah from God. Nehemiah, they're they're coming. They're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. And even the form in which that's stated is a poetic form, as if this is an oracle from God. ESV uh, partly captures that. Um, they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. See, that's a bit poetic. And it's meant to impress upon Nehemiah that this is a word from God. Your enemies are upon you, and there's only one thing you can possibly do to keep yourself safe, and that is go into the temple and hide. What's the problem with that? Nehemiah is not a priest and he's not allowed in the temple. It's against the will of God for him to go in the temple. Nehemiah responds to this suggestion by saying, first of all, should such a man as I run away? Nehemiah is not saying I'm an unusually great guy, but he recognizes that he's a leader among God's people. And he says, if I go into the temple with you, I'm going to discredit myself. I'm going to lose all credibility as a leader of God's people, and I'm not going to be able to bring this task to completion. My leadership, my credibility will be shot, so no. And not only that, he says, what man such as I could go into the temple and live? Notice the irony. The prophet is saying you should be scared of Tobias. He says, I'm not scared of Tobias. I'm scared of God. If I go into the temple, who knows what will happen? to transgress the law of the Lord, that's a truly terrifying prospect. Tobias, Samblin, ah, it'll be all right. And here we learn something significant. The fundamental antidote to the fear of man is the fear of God. When you have a big view of God and his transcending greatness, you're not gonna tremble at threats and intimidation strategies from the people around you. So he sees right through the prophet and he realizes that Tobiah and Sambalat have paid him to give him a misleading prophecy. This is supposed to be the spokesperson of God, but he is using the name of God to try to deceive Nehemiah. And apparently he was not alone. There was a chorus of misleading po- prophetic voices. There was no Adiah the prophetess and other prophets who were trying to thwart Nehemiah from his purpose. Uh, and, and we see here one of Satan's subtle strategies uh, to take the truth of God and uh, the name of God and use it to mislead people into doing something contrary to the will of God. You see that in the ministry of Jesus Christ, don't we? At the beginning of his ministry, he is tempted by Satan. And how is he tempted by Satan? With the word of God. Satan quotes scripture to Jesus to get him to disobey God. He twists the scriptures. And of course, Jesus answers him with the correct meaning of scripture. But one of the strategies Satan uses to cause us to deviate from the will of God is uh, deception in the name of God or Christ. A man can have the Bible in his hands and speak falsehood with his lips. I've come in the name of Jesus Christ to tell you this, and actually what they're saying is an exact contradiction to what Jesus wants you to do. How do we persevere in the face of that kind of religious deception? We do it the way Nehemiah did it. First of all, Nehemiah, as we saw, understood very clearly what God had called him to do. Note, he evaluated the prophecy in terms of his calling and not the other way around, right? He didn't evaluate um, his calling in terms of the prophecy, right, he evaluated the prophecy in terms of what God had called him to do. That was fundamental, he knew God's word. And because the prophet was telling him to deviate from God's word, he said no. He also knew God's law. It wasn't permissible for him to go there, and so he saw that this was a false prophet. If you want to avoid religious deception and persevere in the good God has given you to do, you need to know scripture, and you need to be grounded in doctrine. This is the only thing that in a world of uncertainty and darkness and error allows you to go forward faithfully. And note finally what the goal of all of this was. It was intended to discredit him. We saw that. If he goes into the temple and hides, and cowers, his credibility as a leader is shot. And they know that. They haven't been able to stop him, so now they want to discredit him. And here's what that means for us. Uh, If we want to be effective in the calling God has given to us, we need to live a life that is consistent with what we profess to be true. Uh, We need to live a life of holiness and obedience to Jesus Christ if we want to effectively fulfill our responsibilities. Where people perceive that there is a discrepancy between what we say and what we do, we're going to be ineffective. We'll be labeled as hypocrites, and rightly so. And that was the threat that Nehemiah faced. Well, in any case, he endures. He endures past their religious deception, keeps working on the wall, their attempts to intimidate him. He puts one foot in front of the other, and the result, we are are told, verse 15 and 16, is that the wall, in October 445 B.C., is completed in 52 days. The time span between chapter two of Nehemiah and chapter six is basically six months. And then it takes them uh, 52 days to complete the wall. If that seems fast, I, I should note that according to the ancient Greek historian Thucydides, the Athenians were able to build the wall around Athens in one month. It's a little bit faster. But presumably they didn't have a Tobiah opposing them, so perhaps roughly the same, who knows. In any case, the wall is finished in 52 days. And here we see the fundamental reason for Nehemiah's success. Verse 16, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This is what made the decisive difference. This is what put steel in Nehemiah's spine. His God was faithful to him and supernaturally empowered him to endure the beatings uh, that his enemies administer, to endure the opposition that was put before him. It is the supernatural power of God that enables us to persevere in the calling he has given to us to the end. That's the final difference. It's not Nehemiah's will of iron or his perfect character or anything like that. It is a faithful God who causes his servants to stand when they face opposition. We see a beautiful instance of this in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called to be a prophet of God, a true prophet, incidentally, not like Shemaiah. He's called to be a prophet of God and to proclaim a very unpopular message to Judah. And he's gonna experience all kinds of unrelenting opposition in his ministry, death threats and every kind of attempt to undermine him. And when God calls Jeremiah, here are the words that he pronounces. Jeremiah 1, 18 through 19. This is what he tells his servant. Behold, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Everyone's gonna fight against you, again and again, but you won't falter or fall, because I'm gonna make you like a brass wall that won't topple, because I'm gonna make you stand. And as the Father does, so does the Son. There's a moment in the Book of Acts when the Apostle Paul is in the city of Corinth. And he appears to be concerned about the unrelenting opposition of his enemies, the threats against him. And Jesus Christ appears to him in a vision and he says to Paul, "Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you." It doesn't matter that it's you against the world, Paul. The key thing is that I am with you." And Jesus makes the same promise to us, a uh, promise, incidentally, that is now on the wall there, if you just came in, uh, Matthew 28:20. 20. just saw that wonderful work to those of you who are involved in getting that verse up there on the wall. Uh, Matthew 28:20. Here's what Jesus says to us. I am with you always to the end of the age. That same commitment that God makes to Jeremiah and Paul, he makes to us in all of our endeavors. I am with you. Every step of the way, I'm gonna stand by your side and give you through the Holy Spirit the supernatural resources to fulfill your calling. You're not alone. I'm with you. And because of that, we can endure. We can endure intimidation and threats and unrelenting opposition. Because our power doesn't come from within. It comes from without. As Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. His resurrection life flows to us through the Holy Spirit that we might please God. So if this morning you are weary in doing good, if you're discouraged, if you feel like you can't take another step forward in fulfilling your responsibilities, this text is telling us to look to God. In Jesus Christ, There is strength for every bit of your weakness. Everything that you need to live a life worthy of God and to persevere in the face of unrelenting opposition can be found in Jesus Christ. And the invitation goes out to us all this morning to run to him and find in him the strength that we need. Come to him in your weakness and say, Lord, I don't have what it takes to do what you've called me to do, but you do. So give me the strength that I need. Expect him to act and then walk and faithfulness to him for his glory and the good of those around you, amen. Let's pray together. Father, we know that left to our own devices, we would falter and fail. But we thank you that you are our God and we are your people. And you will never leave us or forsake us. This is where we take our stand and this we rejoice. Heavenly Father, if there are those who are tempted to give up because of the opposition, grant that your spirit and word would not let them. Strengthen them to continue fulfilling the calling that you've bestowed upon them. Amen.